Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my podcast series on the parables of Jesus. To quote my husband, Jeff, we love the parables. True. But they're also a bit tricky sometimes to understand. I've been learning a lot lately about leadership and coaching, and I marvel at the skill that Jesus used in not just telling his followers what to do, how to think, or how to act. Instead, he asked questions, and he gave them concepts to ponder. His followers, I'm sure, would often scratch their heads just like we do and walk away thinking, what? But cleverly, that was the point. They walked away thinking they had some work to do. The lesson was not all neatly tied up in a bow. Like a good professor, Jesus gave his students homework. According to BibleStudyTools.com, a parable is a tale about simple, common subjects that illustrate a deeper, valuable moral lesson. And, and here's what's interesting. The word parable actually means a side-by-side comparison. The definition of being a comparison, it kind of rings true when you think about it because the gospel authors often quote Jesus as beginning a parable with an analogy like the kingdom of heaven is like. Or sometimes the gospel writers quoted Jesus as using an everyday life example to convey a spiritual truth, such as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is where Jesus compared the way the Samaritan acted, and how that demonstrated love and mercy. So it's interesting to look at a parable as comparing things side by side. You know, Winston Churchill, the British prime minister, was known for his brilliant speeches, which were easily understood by the common man. In fact, he's famously quoted as saying, short words are best. Old words, when they are short, are best of all. In many ways, Jesus also treated his teaching this way. He never used large, obscure words or examples. His teaching was brilliant in its simplicity. His stories were easy to remember because they were about commonplace things. Therefore, they could easily come to mind as his listeners tried to dissect their meaning. There's a total of 55 times in the gospel where Jesus uses a parable to teach his followers. Now, some of these parables are repeated across multiple gospels. If my math is correct, there are 31 unique parables. Luke's gospel actually contains the most parables. There's 24, and 18 of them are unique only to his gospel. Matthew, which we're going to focus on in this podcast, he has 23 parables, and 11 are unique to his gospel. Mark, 
Again, this was the shortest gospel. He has eight parables and two are unique to his gospel. Now, there's some disagreement, but most scholars feel that John's gospel doesn't contain any parables, but instead John uses allegory. Okay, to remind you of your ninth grade English class, allegory is when a character or a place or event is used to explain a broader message, like about real world issues. For example, John, when he says that Jesus refers to the vine and the branches, well, this is an allegory where Jesus was the vine and his true disciples were the branches. When we think about Jesus, it is tempting to just focus on his miracles. But what's also truly noteworthy and something we can certainly learn from was Jesus's teaching style through the use of parables. In fact, the gospel writer Mark says that Jesus did not say anything to them without using a parable. Mark chapter 4 verse 34 says he didn't say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. Boy, how lucky were they. Matthew says in Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowds in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Now here, Matthew recalls what David had written in his psalm in Psalm 78, verse 2, which proved to be very prophetic. William Barclay, who is a renowned Scottish minister, he's quoted as saying, Jesus came preaching to dispel ignorance, teaching to correct all misunderstanding, and healing to make men whole. Jesus taught through parables to help people understand the nature of God, how to please God, and what God's kingdom would be like, and what life after death was all about. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as I said, give us some of Jesus's parables, and they repeat some of them as well. Matthew has 11 parables that are not repeated in any of the other Gospels. Matthew, as a fellow Jew, and remember he was one of Jesus's 12 inner circle disciples and apostles, he was really focused on writing to his Jewish audience because Matthew wanted to convince the Jews that Jesus really was the true long-awaited Messiah. So a clever way that Matthew did this was to focus on accounts of Jesus's teaching and the way that the stories reflected the traditional Jewish faith and what would be common traditions to them. One of the parables that's only told in Matthew is the story of the hidden treasure and the pearl. This is found in Matthew chapter 13 verses 44 through 46 
We learn that Jesus is teaching this before a large crowd near a lake. The Bible doesn't tell us which lake, just near a lake. And it says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, these two quick stories are told back to back and don't appear in any other gospel. Jesus was teaching the people that God's kingdom is more valuable than anything they could fathom. Now, to Jesus's audience, pearls or hidden treasure would have had great worldly value. And it was not hard to understand why someone would risk everything to obtain these things. Yet, the kingdom of God was more valuable than these. And Jesus wanted his listeners to know that they, like us, must be willing to give up all earthly perceived possessions to obtain the priceless kingdom of heaven. In fact, to follow Jesus, we may have to give up jobs, security, family relationships, and sometimes even our lives. Matthew quoted Jesus earlier, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what was Jesus talking about? Well, in terms that we can understand, the kingdom of heaven represents the place where God rules. Remember that in our world right now, we have the powers of evil, not hard to imagine, as well as humans who are vying for influence over us. In the kingdom of heaven, however, God alone is the ruler. And scripture tells us that the kingdom of God is both a present reality and a future expectation. What does that mean? Well, it means that right now, the kingdom of God is in the heart of every believer of Jesus Christ. That's why he was saying the kingdom of God is at hand through him. And that we also look forward to the future where God's kingdom will be here on earth. Another parable unique to Matthew is the parable of the fishing net. This follows in Matthew's gospel right after the parable of the pearl. And it's assumed, therefore, that it's to the same large audience near a lake. And it says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that has been let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw away the bad. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, I'm not actually familiar with this parable, but it's similar in intent to another parable you might know about the parable of the weeds, which is also only told in Matthew. The weeds are allowed to grow alongside of the good wheat. 
And then at harvest, the weeds are gathered and thrown into the fire. You're probably understanding how powerful this story would have been to Jesus's listeners. Jesus was talking to them about not judging ahead of time who is a good fish or a bad fish or who is wheat and who is a weed. At the end, when Jesus returns, it will be God who will judge the living and the dead, not us. I think it's noteworthy that Jesus told two parables with really the exact same message. Now, during the time of Jesus, and this is so interesting, and and actually even still now in parts of Africa and Asia, there was this weed. It was very dangerous. In fact, it uh, could kill you. It was called the bearded darnel. And it looks a lot like wheat. It was poisonous, but the farmer would not allow his servants to remove the darnel prior to harvest because it looks so similar to the good wheat that they might mistakenly destroy the good with the bad. So it was the harvester's job to separate the harmful weed from the good wheat. I like how the authors of JesusFilm.org explain this parable. They say, to really grasp this parable, it's helpful to understand Jesus is describing the kingdom of God. Jesus is sowing gospel seeds throughout the world and raising up Christians. But at the same time, the enemy is in the world spreading counterfeit seed, which is really anything other than the good news of Jesus. And the authors explain that in its immature state, it isn't always easy to discern the difference between those that belong to the kingdom and those that don't. In Jesus' story, the servants want to help the farmer by uprooting the imposters, but they lack the sensitivity, hence the need for the angelic harvesters. As Jesus explains, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. And you know what? It's true. Sometimes we can be so quick to judge. As I posted on Facebook last week, We all need to stop being bouncers and start being better ushers. It's not the job of the servants to make judgment about what is and is not actual wheat. Their job is to serve the farmer as he spreads legitimate seed. I really like that. But again, it is hard to not be super judgy. Now to get back to the fish parable. It appears again, Jesus was explaining to this crowd, many of whom were probably either fishermen or farmers, that as the gospel was being spread, all kinds of people would hear it. Some would believe it and change their lives, and some might only be attracted to the entertainment aspect of it, out of curiosity because Jesus has been healing people without really believing. However, again, it's not for us to decide between the good fish and the stinky. Just like a fisherman would separate his fish before bringing them to market, time will come when the real followers of Christ will be separated from the false ones, but that's not up to us.
Another parable unique to Matthew is found in Matthew chapter 13, verse 52. This is the parable of the homeowner. It follows right after these other parables, so we believe, again, it was told to that same large crowd at the lake. Quote, he said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasure as well as old. Hmm. This is some foreshadowing by Jesus because not all the teachers of the law are bad. Some, like Paul, for example, will go on and make connections between the Old Testament prophecies and Christ's new covenant. So Jesus is saying that these teachers of the law are going to play a vital role moving forward in sharing that connection between the old and the new. In other words, bringing out of their storeroom new treasures as well as old. This parable is found a bit later in Matthew chapter 18 verses 12 through 14. It's the parable of the wandering sheep and I'm sure you're familiar with this. It's a parable packed, honestly, with far-reaching meaning. Jesus, right before, had admonished anyone who would look down and not value little children. He says, For I assure you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Okay, let's stop for a moment. So this is right before he's going to tell them a parable. I briefly talked about this passage when I did a podcast on angels. I think this is just such a beautiful promise that our children have angels looking over them. The passage that then follows is the parable of the lost sheep. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that has wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. This really calls out to me. We need to value all life, just like the Good Shepherd. God is concerned about the born as well as the unborn. He's extremely concerned about children. I've been blessed to spend many years focused on children and youth and pointing them toward Christ. We as Christians need to do a better job supporting families and marriages and encouraging them to bring their children into a relationship with Christ. Remember the song, Jesus Loves the Little Children? Well, that's also a call to us as followers of Christ to love the little children. We all need to set a godly example for every child we come into contact with. Now, there's a few other parables that are only found in the Gospel of Matthew. There's the parable of the workers in the vineyard, the parable of the two sons, the parable of the wedding banquet, the parable of the ten virgins, and the parable of the sheep and the goats. All right, let's take a look at the parable of the workers in the vineyard. This one is found in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Jesus taught this one to the crowds of Judea. And it's one of my favorites because it calls us out when we think 
We've been lifelong Christians, and therefore, we're more deserving than converts who are late to the plate. Jesus tells the story of a landowner who hires four sets of laborers throughout the course of the day. When the workday is over, all the workers receive the same wages, which to many of us would seem incredibly unfair. You get paid for the hours you work, right? So Jesus says that those who were hired at the beginning of the day were angered that those who were hired late in the day received a full day's pay. Probably Jesus's listening audience was really outraged at this. It's not fair. Well, the landowner points out that the early workers were fairly compensated, and yet they're jealous at the generosity the landowner showed to latecomers. Hmm, sound familiar? Honestly, we wouldn't take kindly to someone who waltzed into the office every day at noon, took a two-hour nap, and made a few calls, and then called it a day at four and got paid the same as the rest of us. That would seem incredibly unfair. Jesus, with this parable, was trying to teach his listeners that Israel was like the workers hired early in the morning. They'd been part of God's plan from the time of Abraham. They were God's chosen people. Ah, but salvation is offered to everyone. This is what Jesus is trying to teach his audience. And this was a new idea. To quote JesusFilm.org, Jesus was responding to that natural resentment that would come when God's kingdom would be open to those from every nation. We have all heard that scenario that goes something like this. What if a really bad murderer, a psychopath, a purveyor of doom and devastation confessed and came to know Jesus on his deathbed? How would you feel when you saw him in heaven? But it's true, isn't it? We, like the Jews, somehow feel more entitled to salvation. But we aren't, and it's not ours to give. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Matthew 20, verses 13 through 16. We need to refocus on God's generosity and not focus on bitterness and feeling slighted. Remember the thief on the cross who was promised by Jesus, you will see me in paradise? Yeah, that's kind of called the scandal of grace. But we're no better and no worse than that thief on the cross. None of us deserve salvation. What a privilege we have to serve such an awesome, gracious, and merciful God. Let's think about who else can we invite to the table? Salvation is for everyone who believes. Let's share the good news. Better to come to the table late than never. Have a blessed day.